Now they're gone, uh, we need to get into the Word of God. The adults will be back in a moment or two. So I want you to come with me this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And I just want to read verse 2 at this time. Hebrews chapter 12, reading verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and in particularly this phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's wonderful to have something to look forward to. That long-awaited holiday destination uh, that you've longed to see. That day, that date in your diary for your wedding to take place or for the baby to arrive or for that hard-earned promotion to be got. All these things and many, many more are something that we anticipate and get excited about. And it helps also to help us in the journey and the wait in between until we get there or until it arrives or until that thing is accomplished. The book of Hebrews, the writer tells us there that Jesus had joy that we set before him. He lived in the anticipation and the excitement of a wonderful prospect that was ahead of him. And though the journey in between and the time in between would be very testing, there would be a cross to endure. There would be the ignominy and shame and stigma attached to all of that. But that joy that was set before him enabled him to endure all of that, to endure the cross that was ahead. Actually, it made it much more rewarding in the end. So what was this joy that we set before him? What was this thing that he anticipated and was excited about and could hardly wait for it to happen? What was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, as it says? Well, the first thing I believe was this was the joy of being reunited with his Father in heaven. To be reunited with his Father in heaven. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There was something that he had to look forward to that carried him all the way through those 33 years on earth, particularly... The last few weeks and those months of unpopularity and all of that time when it came to the cross, this carried him through all of that, knowing that he would be reunited with the Father. Why do I say that? Well, turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is Jesus' great prayer. Now, you know that in Matthew chapter 6 is what we call the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father who art in heaven prayer. 
Actually, this in John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, the reason it was a model prayer, the reason for that was he was showing his disciples the difference between true prayer and the hypocritical prayers of the Pharisees. But this in John 17 is his personal prayer. And this was prayed within 24 hours of going to the cross. So what was on his mind? What was in his heart? Knowing that within 24 hours he would be facing the most terrible death imaginable. And the awful pain and shame that goes with all of that on the crucifixion. So what was in his heart? What was on his mind? Let's see. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's just pause there. Let's read that part again. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's hard for us to imagine exactly what that means. None of us has ever been there. And some of us, none of us certainly would never ever and could never be in that past in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. But it must have been awesome. And I use that word not lightly. But it must have been literally awesome for him to be with the Father in all of his effulgent glory right there at the Father's right hand. And yet he left all of that, all of that glory and majesty at the Father's right hand to come to the sin-cursed earth and limit himself as the Son of Man. And that's why the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, you know it well, he says this, "'Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus.'" who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It says, who being in the form of God, in the morphe of God, that means in essence God. In essence, he was God. He was the Son of God who became the Son of Man who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, or the word is schema, which means an outward appearance. Every bit a man with a physical human body. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him. This was the joy that was awaiting him. And given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be filled, fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they have, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, and I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. He was praying initially about his disciples, and now he switches to you and to me. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be just one, that they may be just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We're almost finished. Father, I desire that they whom you give me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love which which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. What a fantastic prayer that we don't really have time this morning to expound on, but it's a wonderful, glorious prayer. And so Jesus here is praying and excited and anticipating that moment when he would be reunited with the Father in the glory. We are going to see Jesus glorified, exalted, enthroned, worshipped. What a sight that's going to be. We have never seen him in the flesh. His disciples did, but we have never seen him in the flesh. But whenever we do see him, we're going to see him in all of his fullness 
in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. And we will sing with the hosts of heaven that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's exciting about it. And that's what excited and thrilled him. To know that one day he'd be reunited with the Father. What a joy that was for him. Then the second thing I believe is the joy of having conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. Psalm 35, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The athlete's grueling training finally pays off as he stands on that podium with that Olympic medal around his chest. Amen? All of those lonely early morning training sessions, all of the pain, all of the cramps, all of the torn ligaments, all of the pulled muscles, all of the exhaustion, all of that melts away in that moment, that supreme moment when he stands upon that rostrum and they come and they put that medal around his neck. Isn't that right, John McNally? See, in case you don't know, here's a man sitting in the front row. And in 1952, at the Helsinki Olympic Games, he won the silver medal for boxing. The only Irish athlete that year to win any medal. Isn't that right? The other one was a horse. (laughs) And you had more power than a horse. (laughs) But all of the hours he put in, And all of that training and all of that running and all of that gym and all of that sparring and all of that over those years and over those especially four years to that supreme moment. And then in that moment, all of that melted away. And he stood there basking in the glory. And he'll show you that medal in a heartbeat. He was on TV recently. Somebody stole it and they got it back. Did you see him on TV recently? Thank God he got it back. He has it. You're not allowed it anymore, all right? His son's got it. The mother's suffering, the birth pangs is rewarded by that wonderful, beautiful little baby. Think of what Jesus bore. Think of what he went through for you and for me. Think of all of that. You know, he, had, he was the eldest of five brothers and he had at least two sisters, the Bible tells us. And amazingly, in all of the 33 years he lived upon this earth, right up until he died, not one of them believed that he was Messiah. Not one of them. You would think that at the very least, whenever he turned the water into wine, you'd think that would have been a big clue, wouldn't you? you think that when he raised the dead... When you think when he opened the blind eyes and made the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, what more proof did they need? But they would not and did not believe him until the resurrection. The constant barrage of criticism from the religious people was absolutely relentless, continually trying to catch him in his words. The desertion of his disciples... Even one of them betrayed him, sold him for the price of a slave. And one 
whom he had as his closest, denied him three times. Then, of course, the false religious and civil courts that unjustly condemned him. And the cruelty of the cross and the whippings and the beatings and the scorning and the mocking and the spitting and the plucking out of his beard and the nails in his hands and his feet, all of that so that he may conquer sin and death and hell and the grave for us. That he may break that cycle of the law of sin and death. That he may bring us life. That he may overcome the evil one and all his infernal foes and triumph over them and make a show of them openly as the Bible says. And then finally to say that he said in Revelation 1, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of Hades and of death. Amen. The joy that was set before him. To know that he had finally accomplished the Father's will and plan. And that he had overcome the greatest enemy, which is death itself. Then there is the joy of men and women getting saved. What a joy that is. What a joy for him to think that this past 2,000 years that millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people, men, women, boys and girls, swear their allegiance to him. What a joy it is for him that all over the world and every continent and every country and every nation and every tongue and every kindred and every tribe and every color in every class, there are those who say that Jesus is Lord. You see, in Revelation 5 and 9, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You say, well, has that quite happened yet? Well, I think we're getting pretty close to it. Evangelism Explosion, which is a, an evangelism course that we did many years ago here in this church, they say that they have put that program into every nation on the face of the earth. And they did that about maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. There's lots of ethnic groups but every single one of them will be reached and will be shared the gospel. That's what that scripture is saying. Psalm 22, 7. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Luke 24. And Jesus had that walk along that Emmaus road with those two disciples. He said to them, Thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now the early church struggled with that. They really did. The early church, the early disciples, had no desire to go beyond Jerusalem. 
They had no desire to reach anybody other than Jews. It was to the Jew first. But then they were scattered through persecution. And they had to leave Jerusalem. And then the apostle Paul came, the great missionary apostle and evangelist. And he began to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you remember whenever Peter got that vision of that sheet coming up and down? And all those things that it was unlawful for a Jew to eat. And the voice came and says, Arise, sly and eat. He says, Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything uncommon or clean. And that happened three times. And then suddenly three men arrived, three Gentiles. He began to realize that God was speaking to him. And he backed to the house of Cornelius. And as he was beginning to share about Christ, the Holy Ghost came. <laughs> and suddenly he began to realize, Hey, this thing is bigger than just for the Jews. This is for the Gentiles. This is for the ends of the earth. This is what was prophesied in Pentecost, wasn't it? Operation World Handbook is a handbook that you can buy. And it's a, a tool for, for prayer for those who pray for the nations. And it's updated regularly, I think, every year. And it gives a lot of statistics about nations, how many are Christian and Muslim and Hindu or, or, or Buddhist or whatever, depending what nation you're in. And it says that the current world population is just under 7 billion, 6.9 billion people currently alive today. And of that, 2.2 billion call themselves Christian. Now obviously there'll be a lot of that, there'll be nominal Christianity. But they call themselves Christian, 2.2 billion people. And of that, they estimate that there's 546 million evangelicals. When I say evangelicals, and that's kind of a broad church these days, but when I say that, I'm saying that those who would outwardly profess unashamedly that they're born again of the Spirit of God, that they're saved, that they believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they'd be Bible-believing, they wouldn't just be nominal. 546 million in 1960, there's only 89 million would claim that. In just over 50 years, suddenly there's 546 million around the world. And it's growing every day. Christianity is by far the fastest growing religious movement, if I can use that term, on earth. Outstripping Islam. And so, can you imagine the joy that Christ must feel and see. What does it say? Luke 15 and 7, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Just one person coming to faith in Christ is cause for celebration in heaven. Heaven must be celebrating continually because all over the world right now as we speak, men and women and boys and girls are coming to Christ at, at large numbers. And it's wonderful. And that's what Jesus died for. He died that men and women may come to Christ and have life and have it more abundantly and have it eternally. And so the sheer joy of men and women getting saved. Do you mind that little trilogy of parables he told about the lost coin? Remember all of that there? And the lost sheep and the lost son and all of those Little parables, there was such joy whenever the 
coin was found and whenever the sheep was found and whenever the son came back and was found, there was such joy. The woman rejoiced and she got her neighbors to rejoice with her, didn't she? And the shepherd came back with the one sheep over his shoulders. Such joy. And the father embraced the prodigal. Such joy. He threw a party for that. How much more the Son of God who gave his very life to see this happen. The joy of men and women getting saved. And then the joy of sharing his joy with us. John 15 11, These things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. We read in John 17, didn't we? If I can just find it again. Why don't we just look at that again? John 17. Verse 13, but now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That your joy may be full. Now, when something good happens to you, and at that moment you feel elated, you're happy, you feel joyful, what do you want to do? You want to share it, don't you? You want to put it on Facebook, don't you, Baggy? <laughs> you want the whole world to know that Corey and I have gotten engaged. <laughs> but you do. You want to share. You want to share what good thing has happened. And it's wonderful. I remember many years ago. I remember the day it happened, where it happened, and how it happened. And that was I was playing golf. I haven't played golf for years, but that was when I was playing golf. And it was a, a little course in Glengormley. And I was at a particular hole. And I remember taking out the club and teeing up and hitting that ball on the sweet spot. Liz. Liz is a golfer, you know what I'm talking about. And as I hit that ball, it just the flight was perfect. And I just knew it was going to hit the green. I mean, it just had the green written all over it. And I stood there and watched the flight of the ball. And it hit the green. And it took two little skips and it just trundled right into the hole. It was a hole in one. Now you could play golf all of your life and never score a hole in one. They are rare things indeed. And I stood there and my heart was swelling with pride. <laughs> ah, a hole in one. What are the odds? But I know it wiped the smile on my face. I had nobody with me. <laughs> I had nobody to share it with. Nobody to turn around and say, did you see that? <laughs> Not a one. And I thought, who's going to believe me? Who am I going to tell that's going to believe me? Because nobody was there to see it. Nobody, I think it was maybe the only one on the whole course that day. But my point is, when something good happens, you just want to share it. You want to lift that phone. You want to write that letter. You want to visit that. You want to do something. You've got to tell somebody. And Jesus, part of that joy that was set before him, was to share that 
with us. He wanted us to see him in all of his glory. He wanted us to see him completely and utterly glorified, majestic, enthroned, seated at the Father's right hand. And that joy that he would share with us, he wanted that to be something for us to look forward to. Certainly we have joy on this earth and certainly there's those moments uh, when it's absolutely wonderful and you're excited and you're thrilled. But the joy that we're talking about here that awaits us because this joy awaits us too. This will be uncontainable. This will be beyond your wildest imaginations. This joy we have never felt. In our best day on earth we have never felt this joy. It makes you want to go there right now, doesn't it? This is fullness of joy. This is cup running over joy. This is deep joy. Heaven will be the most joyful place in all of the universe. Do you realize that? The Bible tells us because in heaven there will be no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no disease, no anxiety, no fear, no worry, nothing, nothing to disturb us, absolutely nothing to concern us. We've never experienced that, sure we haven't. Yes, we have moments that are carefree. But there's some days and they're just a pain and a hassle, aren't they? There's some nights you put your head in your pillow and you're just glad, thank God that day's over, isn't it? And then you get up the next day and face it all over again. But can you imagine living eternally and never ever having an anxious thought ever to worry you, never have a twinge or a pain, never have a care? This is what awaits those who go to heaven. No devil... No fallen world to contend with. This world is a broke, sick, sad world. But heaven will be full of joy and full of peace and full of light and full of life. No wonder we want others to join us. Whenever you understand that, and whenever you know that, and whenever you read the book of Revelation and see that, no wonder you want to tell others to come to Christ, to come to faith in Jesus. Because the best days are ahead of us. The best days are ahead of us. Now let us end this message by just briefly looking at the context. Normally I would always do the context first. And we'll just be a few moments. But by briefly looking at the context that the writer of the Hebrews wrote about the joy that was set before Jesus. So look at Hebrews chapter 12 again. Verse 1 this time. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Now you have to understand that the Hebrew Christians this was written to, at that particular time were coming under opposition. Persecution had arisen, and some of them weren't taking it too well. In fact, some of them had stopped coming to church altogether, had deserted the house of God, had gone back because of the persecution that was coming upon them. They hadn't yet resisted unto blood, the writer of the Hebrews said. And that's why he says, consider Jesus. Think of what he went through. Think of all the hostility. And he endured all of that. In fact, he endured the whole cross for the joy that was set before him. And he's telling him, think of the joy that's set before you in your rough times and your difficult seasons when you can't figure it out and God seems a million miles away. He says, consider it beyond all of that. And think of the joy that is set before you in the days that are coming. 1 Peter chapter 4. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, note this, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Huh. When his glory is revealed. That's what we've been talking about this past 30 minutes. That you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And then in James chapter 1, just back a little bit there. James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Well, let's read verse 16 first. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Ah. See, Paul had an eternal perspective in life. His light affliction that he talks about, if you read his letters, you'll find out it would be anything that we would call light. <laughs> Far from light as we would think. I mean, this man suffered all kinds of difficulties and problems, including shipwrecks and beatings and whippings and everything. He says it's light affliction, 
which is but for a moment. But then he amazes us by saying, and it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We would say it's working against us. He says it's working for us because of his eternal perspective. Why? Because we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Believer, time is so brief. Eternity is forever. Get your eyes on eternity, because that's where you're going to spend all of your time. This little moment on earth is a flash. It's a breath. It'll be gone in a moment. It's all of eternity, forever and forever and forever. That's where we're going to spend our lives. And that's what Paul focused on. And do you know what that does? It does for what it did for Jesus when he was suffering. It helps you to look ahead for the prize, for the reward, for the joy that's set before you. And that helps you to go on. You see, Roberta here, whenever she was going through all of that treatment, when she was diagnosed, she set herself a goal. She says, I'm going to go to Germany. You say, well, why Germany? Because she wanted to go to Germany. Her husband's been there many times, but as she said, the chances of him taking her there was probably going to be remote. So she says, at least Sally will go with me. And maybe she and her other sister, and it so happens they're all going. But she set herself that goal so that when she's gone through all of that horrible treatment, and it's horrible, she was able to say, come May, God willing, I'm going to be in Ireland and then we're going to go to Germany. You see, that was a little bit of joy that was set before her. Now, extrapolate that. That's a big word like marmalade, isn't it? All right, take that further. Expand that thought into all eternity. Because that's where you're going to be. One place or the other, that's where you're going to be. That's where you're going to spend the rest of your time in eternity. And so that's what Paul says. We don't look at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, because he knew he was going to sit at the right hand of the Father. And what a wonderful scene that is for us to look forward to the things that we're reading about today, the things that we're thinking about, the things that we meditate on in this book, we're going to actually see it. We're going to be there and experience it. And that's the reality of the Christian life. It's not airy-fairy. It's real. It's true. It's going to happen. Amen? Let's pray.